Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. This week, how close is a four-day working week? We hear about some recent trials that are causing waves and what it means for the future of work. We as a society will only survive if we do something about the amount of work we do. And the complicated history and politics of how Nairobi's informal settlements got their names. The people were identifying with global struggles and using names to reflect the struggles that they were facing. I'm Gemma Ware in London. And I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. Dan, if I say the phrase four-day week to you, what does it mean? Uh, Well, my brain immediately goes to three-day weekend, but I imagine you're talking about working four days and getting paid for five. Yeah, and I think that's what most people think of when they hear the phrase four-day week. And it's an alluring idea, isn't it? I mean, it sounds great to me. And in the last few years, a number of places have actually started experimenting with making changes to the hours and days we work. A couple of small trials around the world, including in Sweden and the Netherlands, have tried reducing working hours like this. In 2018, Perpetual Guardian, a financial services company in New Zealand, trialed a four-day, 32-hour work week. Most of its nearly 250 staff didn't work on Fridays. We want people to be the best they can when they're in the office, but also the best at home. So it's the natural solution. An analysis of the trial found no drop in productivity, and not surprisingly, employees said their work-life balance improved and stress levels went down. The following year, Microsoft in Japan trialed a four-day week for the month of August and found a 40% boost in sales. Now, most of these trials have been relatively small scale, and so the results of a much larger trial in Iceland were eagerly anticipated. A report on that experiment, published in early July, made headlines around the world. A four-day work week trial in Iceland is being called an overwhelming success. But it wasn't quite that simple. What it was not was a trial of a four-day week. This is Tony Veal. I'm at the University of Technology, Sydney, and I'm an adjunct professor, which means I'm retired, but still active in research. And my field of research and teaching since the 1970s has been in uh, the field of leisure. One aspect of leisure is, of course, that it's not work. And so I tend to get involved in the kind of relationship between work and leisure. The recent report on the Iceland trial was written by an Icelandic not-for-profit organisation called ALDA and a UK-based think tank called Autonomy. Tony poured over it. This was 2,500 employees in the city council of Reykjavik and also part of the national government. They were in about 60 different work situations, so it was really about 60 little experiments, if you like, because there were separate offices and depots. And they had the unions behind them with this experiment, which is interesting. And it's two public sector employers. And they did it over a couple of years. So to be fair, it, they did have time to work, work it through. Those taking part had their hours cut, but their pay remained the same. But the amount of hours cut were quite small. So in one, I think in the government offices, they cut four hours. But most of the others were somewhere between one and three hours, but proportionately. Not very many were in the th- three hours even, more two and one. Some of the workplaces in the trial dealt with inquiries from the public. Others were police forces. 
there was an attempt to measure what happened to productivity when working hours were reduced. There was broadly no loss of productivity, despite the reduction in hours, the number of arrests, the number of inquiries and so on seemed to be maintained. The response from everyone involved was very positive. There were surveys of the workers and of the managers as well as to whether they found the change satisfactory and were happy with it. And it was an overwhelming you know, majority were in favour of the changes. Following the success of the trials, unions sat down with employers to hammer out an agreement to reduce working hours. They had a, a union agreement with these two employers afterwards, but What was struck in those bargains was only one hour off for the public sector workers and about 35 minutes a week for the commercial or private sector employers. This is a long way from what most people probably think of when they hear the term four-day week. The experimenters and the organisations doing this didn't themselves use the word four-day week, but the press coverage put four-day week in the headlines. Tony wrote a piece for The Conversation, arguing that much of the press coverage of the Icelandic trial was actually misleading. Well, it wasn't a four-day week at all. So it's it's highly successful in its own terms. And if you put it in that historical context, it was quite a step forward, comparable to what had been achieved in earlier decades to get down to the 40 hours. Even a 40-hour week would have seemed far out of reach to most employees in the Western world a century ago. And we're going to dig down now into that history of the fight to work fewer hours, something Tony tracked in a recent book. It began from the very heights of the Industrial Revolution, where there was terrible exploitation of uh, workers in the middle of the 19th century. And there had been 12 hours, but there was a campaign to get a 10-hour day in the 19th century. The typical widespread working week was six days, and then in the 20th century, the campaign was on to get the eight-hour day. In 1919, when the International Labour Organisation was founded in the wake of the First World War, one of its objectives was for a 48-hour working week over six days. This model of an eight-hour working day was gradually adopted across Europe in the years that followed. The claims in relation to the, um, to the reduction of the working day, and, and the week for that matter, was uh, fatigue. And just like today, those in favour of reducing work hours argued that fatigue had a negative impact on productivity. Workers who are fatigued and possibly um, dangerous because they're overworked and tired and lacking attention were prone to accidents and illnesses and all the rest of it. So even things like um, you know attendance and sickness absences were reduced when they re- reduced the length of the working week. In the interwar period of the 1920s and 30s, these arguments grew louder. There was quite a lot of argument on the union side and from some reformers that people needed time to, to, to be human, <laughs> to be with their families, to raise their kids and that sort of thing. And that came in even you know, also with, with women. Although most of the labour force was male, there was a lot of women working in factories and that sort of thing. And, and it was, you know, one of the strands of argument was that women who were working long hours were neglecting their families. A different era. What followed was a gradual reduction from a six-day week to a five-and-a-half-day week, with workers given Saturdays off. Whole industries were born, um, including, for example, professional sport. And the stadium and all that sort of thing, and paying 
customers to go to sport, to football or whatever, uh, came in in that period when people had Saturday afternoon off. But other arguments were circulating in the interwar years about why working hours needed to reduce, particularly in the US during the Great Depression of the 1930s. One argument was, it, does this crisis, the Depression, mean that we've got an excess of labour generally? And is the, is the only solution to reduce the working hours of individuals so that the work is shared around? And there was even then an act for Congress, which Roosevelt introduced to legally reduce the working hours to 30 in a response to that phenomenon and that argument. It was around this time that the influential British economist John Maynard Keynes made a famous prediction. So he did some speculation and said that in a 100 years from then, which is about 1930-31, we would be able to almost dispense with manual labour because of automation and investment and all the rest of it. But he said we'd have to give people something to do, and so he suggested we should give people a 15-hour working week. And, of course, this was a forecast for 2030, which is only 10 years away. But arguably, you could say, well, a, a Second World War did intervene, and so he's got a bit of leeway. It was after the Second World War, Tony says, that some companies began to reconsider the length of the working week. It tended to be the industries that were able to innovate, including with wages, shorter hours, holidays, were the uh, highly productive, highly profitable growing industries and also where there was quite strong union organisations to campaign for the workers to get their share. And if there was a lot of movement, a lot of growth, there was money for everybody or resources for everybody. And the employers could actually concede the demands of the workers much more readily because the profits were rolling in. And this would be true, for instance, of the car industry, car manufacturing. And Henry Ford is well known for saying that he wanted his workers to have more time and more money so they had money to buy his cars and the time to enjoy them. This school of thought became known as Fordism. It influenced the way economies grew, building in leisure time for the labour force, which helped spur on consumption. It was in this period in the middle of the 20th century that the five-day, 40-hour working week began to become the standard. So it took half a century to get it from six days down to five. That was quite an achievement um, and a lot of struggle and a lot of resistance from employers. But by the 1970s and 80s, the gradual reduction in working hours had stalled. This was a time when more and more women began to enter the labour force in Western countries thanks to changes in social attitudes and greater access to higher education. The emerging feminist labour movement made its priority a push for gender equal pay. And yet there was also an issue with the type of work women were starting to do and the hours they were getting. After the 1970s, when women were starting entering the labour force across the Western countries, um, they usually entered the labour market on a part-time base. This is Jana Javanik. Jana is an associate professor of work and employment relations at the University of Leeds in the UK. Her research focuses on gender and equality in the labour market, including family welfare policies. When I spoke to her, she was in Slovenia, where she spent the past few years on secondment as the country's general director of higher education, a role which recently ended. And there was this theory that obviously women are not entering the labour market because the only work available is that of with longer hours, which doesn't free up time for women uh, because someone still needs to take care of children and dependents. 
And there was this thesis that should more jobs become available on part-time, women would be more able to join the labour market. And it did happen. Uh, it happened in the UK, uh, later in the Netherlands, basically the countries where women predominantly work on part-time. But it's not that simple, right? There has to be a demand and there has to be so much more and women need to want to go into work. But if we stick to the concept of part-time work, it soon led to becoming a trap because part-time jobs are very often seen as jobs that keep women in low-paid jobs, low-paid sectors, uh, and basically not doing what they really uh, were educated for. And uh, we see across the world the majority of those part-time jobs pre-COVID um, were involuntary. And very often part-time used to be a very simple and quick fix for keeping employees in the labour market where things go wrong, when macroeconomic uh, situation got worse. But the problem with part-time work is that once you get into a part-time job, it's really difficult to get out of it. At the same time, the informal work that women traditionally do, such as caring for children and other family members, has been historically undervalued. This is partly why Jana is wary of talk of a four-day week. I'll be quite blunt. Uh, I think the whole conversation around um, four-day week has been ignoring the gender. Obviously, you can't be but sceptical, right? Because women through history have been losers in anything that's been introduced, women have, have gained less than men on average. Um, and when we are talking about the reduction of number of hours, we really need to be true to that concept. And I'll take us to, to the Netherlands, which cut the number of hours uh, in total for everyone uh, in the strong belief that that would contribute to gender equality. But they moved back and away from that because it didn't work. And it, again, it was women who had to pick up the slack when they cut the number of hours of public childcare down because the workload just hasn't been reduced. Joanna thinks that unless the workload is reduced, reducing hours will just lead to frustration. Something that became apparent from a study she did in Sweden about a decade ago. All of a sudden, there was this new social norm starting to grow that new generation of parents are good when they cut the number of hours at work. In practice, this meant that although public childcare facilities were open till quite late in the evening, parents were expected to leave work at 4pm to collect their kids and spend the afternoon with them. That expectation was really kind of bigger and, and harsher for women than it was for men. Jana and her colleagues interviewed both mothers and fathers about the issue. And it was women showing quite a lot of level of frustration with that because they said, you know, like... My workload hasn't been reduced, but I now have this huge expectation that I need to be at the nursery by 4pm sharp, or if I don't do that, if I fail, I'm a bad mother. The women Jana interviewed found ways to manage the situation, but it made them feel they had less control over their working day. They picked up a kid at four, went home, cooked a meal, spent the afternoon with their kid, put a kid to bed and went back to work. And I think a lot of uh, female audience can, can uh, sympathise with that because, you know, this is what a lot of women do. A lot of mothers do that. A lot of carers do that. And that, that kind of gave me this understanding of we can talk about a full day week as long as we want to, but unless we 
cut the workload, the way we organize work. And then I, I read a lot about that, of how, uh, how much entropy there is. So I think in parallel to the conversation we have about cutting the number of hours, we need to have a conversation around how to organize and run the business in a smart way so that people actually work. But at the same time, Jana said the study showed what can happen to productivity when hours are compressed. And interestingly enough, in our research also, we found that mothers, because the time compresses for them, right, they can't spend endless hours at work because they have someone to take care of and someone depends on them. They become more productive. There's other pieces of research on that as well, on mothers uh, becoming more productive because they, they really must finish by a certain time in a day. It's this question about what a reduction in working hours does to productivity which looms large over discussions of a four-day week, particularly among economists. My name is Jose Ignacio Anton and I'm Associate Professor at the Department of Applied Economics in the University of Salamanca in Spain. Jose Ignacio, who's a labour economist, recently reviewed a bunch of recent trials on reduced working hours around the world. I asked him what economists like him look for when measuring the success of these experiments. I would have a look first at what happens with productivity. Uh, there are reasons for thinking that productivity can decrease and productivity can increase. Jose Ignacio is particularly interested in this now because of the Spanish government's decision to greenlight a trial of a four-day week. Spain may be taking its first steps towards shortening the standard working week. The country is about to trial a reduction in working hours. Employees won't have their wages cut. There is a political party that supported the government. It's a very small party that is not part of the cabinet. And they basically condition the support on the possibility of adopting these four days working weeks. Maspais persuaded the Spanish government to agree to fund a three-year pilot of a four-day working week. The initial estimated cost of this pilot is around 50 million euros. What they propose is to carry out and uh, basically reducing the normal working time of uh, 40 hours to 32 hours that will be preferably allocated into just uh, four days. Crucially, a worker's overall pay will remain the same. So uh, it would mean that the hourly pay will be increased by 20%. Uh, what you have here is that uh, you could hypothetically observes that the reform pays for itself if you have an increase in productivity of 20%. But this is probably something that is not going to happen. That's because if reducing working hours by 20% did actually lead to a 20% increase in productivity, companies would have done this already anyway, he says. It would have given them a competitive advantage. The details and timing of the Spanish trial are still being hammered out. But there are a couple of things that stand out from what information has been released about the proposal. For me, what is interesting is that it's not limited to the public sector. That is something easier to, to implement like in public administration. The goal is also to make sure the trial doesn't just include people who work in offices. And there is also some intention to try to recreate a very good amount of uh, firms uh, that are outside the more typical sectors to have, for instance, restaurants or hotels or places like that to see, to have different types of sectors that have different technologies, different intensities in the use of capital and labor and so on. 
Under the proposal, firms who volunteer to take part will then be randomly put into two groups. One group will reduce the hours of their working week and be compensated by the government along the way, while the other will keep the same hours. One of the intentions of the MassPays was also to offer some sort of consulting services in terms of how to reorganize the, the work and so on in order to try to improve productivity. But Jose Ignacio says that productivity shouldn't be the only way to measure the success of an experiment like this and that other benefits have emerged from previous trials that are worth studying. The point is that it can have other effects. For instance, it can have positive effects on the work-life balance, it can have positive effects on a reduction of people that go on sick leave, and so on. Some of the benefits are not uh, directly retrieved by the firm, but are uh, economic benefits for the society, that to have people with less stress, with less mental health problems, and with a better life balances is something positive. So in the end, you'd have to balance everything. And uh, a good economics uh, should take account of everything. The Spanish government's agreement to do the trial in the middle of a pandemic has led to criticism from some politicians and media commentators that it's a waste of money. But Jose Ignacio says that if a reduction in working hours is to get widespread approval, a robust, controlled experiment is vital to understand the impact of such a policy. I'm not going to say that it's cheap, but it's much more expensive because the governments all over the world are doing every day. That is to put money in programs that they don't know how they work at all. If it works uh, and it gives you... Good evidence on that is wonderful. And if it does not work, I think that there should be also a reflection and to say that maybe it's not the time or where are the problems and so on. For Jana Javonik, there are some big questions that still need answering before a wholesale reduction of working hours is achieved. Not least about the jobs that need to be done 24-7, be that in the hospitality sector, call centres or even emergency services. I don't want to be a party pooper because I do believe, I really genuinely believe that we as a society will only survive if we really do something about the number of hours and the amount of work we do. But we also need to to have all those really difficult conversations of what will happen to the taxi drivers, what will happen to uh, the police force, how will their work be organised and reorganised? Will we be able to get enough employees? At the same time, Jana believes that any conversation about reducing working hours must take into consideration the impact the change will have on particular groups of people. We need to be thinking about gender. We need to be thinking ethnicity and race, disability. We need to be thinking about demographic outlooks and how this will affect different different social groups. Uh, and particularly when we are reducing the number of hours, which, you know, like I, I strongly believe in that concept, right? Because I think we've reached a plateau. We can't work more as human beings. We just can't. But the way we go about it and the way we address this issue needs to be really super smart. And we as a society, we just don't seem to be that super smart. And I think as we are bouncing back from, from COVID and as we are investing in recovery, it just shows how stubbornly persistent some patterns are and how comfortable some employers are with just sticking to the good old comfort zones, you know, going back to the office, long hours, long commute, all of that, right? And I think we've reached that historic point. If we don't change the way we work now, when will be the next great opportunity to do that?
And Yana made the point that wherever the conversation and pilots of a four-day week go, remember, it's far out of reach for many people around the world. For me, I think a five-day work week is something we in weird countries, so Western, educated, industrialised, developed countries are familiar with. Whereas there are still many countries in the global south where there are no regulations at all. And I think for them, a regulated work week would be quite a big step forward. And even in countries where there is a regulated 40-hour work week, or in France where it's 35 hours, she says it's the work culture rather than the mandated hours that is wearing people down. It's a problem of the culture we've developed, and that's work until you drop and non-stop work culture. Going back to really mandating a 40-hour week, for me as an academic, I think that would be quite an achievement today, right? But that's not what we should strive for, because I think as, as a society, we need to have a really serious conversation about the future of work. That last point about work culture, that really struck home. I imagine it would be very hard, just because you're only supposed to work four days, to not work extra, especially if productivity isn't supposed to go down. Yeah, and I think that's going to be the hardest part of all this, to to really implement that change. Now, if you want to read more about the four-day working week and some of the issues that we've explored in this story, you can find links to articles by Jose Ignacio Anton, Tony Veal, and Jana Javonik in the show notes. Now, for our second story of the day, we're headed to Nairobi, the capital city of Kenya. In May, the government decided to name a road in Nairobi after Francis Atwoli, a trade union leader. This caused huge anger. Nairobi Metropolitan Services restored a Francis Atwoli road sign after it was vandalized last night. Many people saw the renaming as an overtly political decision. But it's not just the street names in Nairobi that come with their own politics. The names of the city's informal settlements, too, are themselves born out of a history of colonisation and struggle. To find out more, I called up a Kenyan historian. My name is Melissa Wanjiro Mwita. I currently reside in Nairobi, Kenya. I am a lecturer at Technical University of Kenya, and I look at the relationship between the names of places and the politics and the culture of those places. And you've just published some recent research about this in the city of Nairobi. So can you tell us what was it about? What were you researching? So I looked at how names have evolved from when Nairobi was uh, a colonial city to a post-independent city and how these names reflect the challenges and struggles that the people there And let's go back a bit and and understand the history of this. So can you just give us an an outline of what's the history of of these informal settlements around the the edge of Nairobi? Tell us how they grew and and what's happened to them over time. So when the city began, it started as a railway city in 1899, whereby we had the Kenya-Uganda Railway, uh, which was meant as a transportation route to get raw materials from the inland all the way to the coast. The British, who were at the time colonizing Nairobi, uh, found it to be a good base to come up with a provincial headquarters. And so when they reached Nairobi, it seemed as a good place to come up with a depot or a storage area. And that's how Nairobi developed as a camping site and then developed into a town and then into a city. And so how the informal settlements developed was that there were different communities 
Uh, so we had the British colonial government and their officials who came in to administer the center. And then we had um, Indian workers who were also working uh, for the railway. And then we had the African natives who were doing cattle grazing and some farming activities even before the center became a railway center or a town. And so we had these three communities. And the idea was to not have the African native as a permanent resident of the city. But what happened is that because of uh, the attraction of how the city was developing quickly and just the commercial activities happening around there, then we had more of them coming in. And so they could not be accommodated. And that's how some of the shanties or some of the temporary housing started to develop on the edges of the city, the places that were not planned. And, and something happened in the 1920s, didn't it? So in 1922, there was a Vagrancy Act, which was put up, and really it was to try and uh, curb the influx of especially the native African into the city. And so every African native coming into the city was expected to carry an identification, which was hanging a bottle on their neck. And this was uh, called the Kipande system. Actually, up to now, we still have our IDs are referred to as kipandes, although now they have evolved into small cards. But this still did not completely work as they expected. And so that is when our dormitory residence started to be built so that at least they could be accommodated. They were built in such a way that the African worker, mainly the male worker, could come and work. And he could not bring the family with him. So it was uh, a temporary residence for him to just come work and go back to the city. But this kind of setup is not sustainable, especially in the African setting where the society is very communal. And so this is how some of them ended up having settlements on the edges of the city or in the pockets of the city which were not developed. And, and tell us, how did you go about doing the research to find out the history of these settlements? What, what did you actually do? To understand the history, I had to do a lot of archival research. So in Kenya, we have the Kenya National Archives, where you can find um, old newspaper records. You can find some books written even from when the city began. And then we also have a library called the Macmillan Library, where I found some archival materials. And I also visited the National Archives in the UK, where there are a lot of materials on colonial Kenya. And I used those to get the history of how the settlements developed. I also did some fieldwork where I talked to the residents themselves to understand where do these names come from? Do they know how the names came about? And I happened to talk to some elderly people who have lived in the settlements for quite a bit, and they have an understanding about the history of the settlements, yeah. And and your recent paper that you, you've written has, has focused on the history of three of these settlements, hasn't it? Yes. My recent research was looking at three main informal settlements in Nairobi and Kibera, uh, happens to be the largest. Then we have another one called Madare uh, and Mokuru. 
So what emerged in the case of Kibera is the influence of the rich Nubian history. So the Nubians generally occupied the Sudan area and they came into Kenya as soldiers in the Kenya African Rifles during the First World War. And so Kenya being a British colony, they brought them in and as they were fighting on their side, after the war ended, they had to find a place for them to live. And so a small barracks was established around five, six kilometers from the city center. And it was supposed to be a temporary residence, but over time they developed villages and made this their habitation, so to speak. And so the name Kibra actually means a forest or a jungle in the Nubian language. And just from the name, you can see that the Nubian heritage is actually inscribed on Kibera. And some of the names have got political connotations, have they, as well? Yeah, so then we have had uh, other villages like Soweto. So Soweto comes from the Soweto uprising in South Africa. And so the people were facing evictions. They saw, like, this is the same as the struggle in South Africa. So we are struggling with the government. They want to evict us. We have to fight for our rights, etc. And one of the other uh, settlements, neighbourhoods you, you talked about is, is Matare. That's also got some political history behind it too. Yes. So Madare is also a very old settlement and it tends to be associated with the struggle for freedom. So you have the Mau Mau, rebellion which was at the forefront of fighting against the colonial government and it is said that many of them would use madare as a hideout area while uh, carrying out their activities and are there any other political events that have also influenced the names of settlements in nairobi beyond fighting for independence the urban poor have continued to live in these settlements and what happened after independence, it became now a fight between the different social classes. And so the government became a sort of a nemesis of the people. And they would want to evict the people so that they can build roads. That's what they would say. And so when you look at a name like Kosovo, this is quite recent in the late 90s, when the Kosovo war was going on, the people in Madare were also facing evictions from the local authorities. And so for them, they say, oh, this is just the same as the war going on in Kosovo. We are fighting for our rights. We are fighting against the government. And so the people were identifying with the global struggles and using names to reflect the struggles that they were facing. And what about your own research? What are you looking into next? In Kenya, there's a challenge between privatizing the names and keeping the heritage of those names, especially if they have a political history, etc. So that's what I'm looking at in the near future. Well, thank you so much, Melissa. It's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you for the opportunity to speak about my work. Melissa Wanjiru Mwita there from the Technical University of Kenya. In this week's episode, a quick message from my colleague Kate Holmes in New York. 
This is Catesby Holmes of the Conversation recording in New York City. Immigration frequently makes headlines here in the United States, and over the past week we covered two major news stories on this topic. One involved a court ruling on a federal program called DACA, which for a decade has protected from deportation roughly 700,000 undocumented immigrants brought to the U.S. as children by their parents. On July 16th, a federal judge in Texas declared this Obama-era program unlawful, ruling on a lawsuit filed during the Trump administration. I interviewed Kevin Johnson, an immigration law specialist at the University of California, Davis, about what the court ruling means for current and future DACA recipients, sometimes known as DREAMers. Another recent immigration story comes from the United States' southern border with Mexico, where migrants are arriving again in huge numbers after a decline during the pandemic. Among those migrants are children who cross the border without a legal guardian. Since October 2020, Border Patrol officials have documented over 95,000 unaccompanied child migrants at the U.S. border. That's a record. The U.S. is legally obligated to care for these children, according to Randy Mandelbaum, a professor at Rutgers University, Newark, in her article for The Conversation. Her story explains what exactly happens to a migrant child who enters the U.S. alone from the moment they cross the border, through the resettlement process, and until they turn 18. You can find my interview and Randy's story at theconversation.com. Thanks for reading. That was Catesby Holmes there from Brooklyn, New York. That's it for this week, but one note for everyone listening, this is going to be our last episode for a couple weeks. We're taking a bit of a vacation, and we'll be back with more good content for you on August 26th. In the meantime, we'll be featuring a few extended versions of some of our favorite interviews from the past few months on the Conversation Weekly channel, so stay tuned. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us podcast at theconversation.com. You can also sign up for our free and quite good daily email by clicking on the link in the show notes. Thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode, and to the Conversation editors, Scott White, Lucia Caballero, and Tim Wallace. And thanks to Alice Mason for our social media promotion. And tell your friends and family about the show, especially people who might not listen to podcasts normally. If you're enjoying The Conversation Weekly, please leave a rating or review wherever podcast apps allow you to. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sol. I'm Dan Marino. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. <laughs>